So uh, this morning, uh, like Jenny said, we are continuing in our Lord's Prayer series we've been looking at um, over the last few weeks now, the, the words that Jesus taught his disciples. Um, you know, simple words, how do we pray? But our focus in this series is very much on, well, what does it tell us about the God we pray to? What is it telling us about our Father in heaven and what he is like? Today, uh, I am... Uh, looking at the next couple of lines, uh, which go like this. I think we've got the words on the screen for you as well, but um, they, the, the next line is, and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Probably very familiar words to most of us. And, uh, and this is great, isn't it? We get to talk about forgiveness and the God who forgives. I love thinking about forgiveness. I love talking about forgiveness. I love hearing about the God who offers forgiveness to us as a free gift. And I love speaking about this. No doubt you probably love hearing about it and being reminded that God is a God who offers forgiveness to us. So it would be really great if we could spend all our time talking about the God who forgives and just kind of gloss over that second part because, I, I mean, surely that's not important. I mean, Jesus, like, why did you have to bring our forgiving of other people into this? Could it not have just been, God, please would you forgive us of our sins? Like, surely, Jesus, surely you're not tying these two things together. Surely you're not kind of lumping these two, not linking these two things together, your forgiveness of us with our forgiving of other people. Surely not, Jesus. And then, unfortunately, if you've ever read the line after the Lord's Prayer in your Bible, the Lord's Prayer finishes, and the le- next line, this is Matthew 6, verse 14, says, If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Ouch. I think you might have linked them, guys. That's a bit painful, isn't it? Like, are you with me on this? Makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Raises some difficult questions around unconditional forgiveness and grace. Come on, Jesus. Why couldn't you have just, you know, kept it simple, transactional? We ask for forgiveness and we can get it. Why have you linked them? Lots of different ideas around this, aren't there? You've, you've maybe heard some of these before. Is it because... Our hearts just can't receive God's forgiveness while withholding forgiveness towards other people. You might have heard that said. Is it just the kind of pure hypocrisy of it where it's, God, okay, well, I pray you'd forgive me, but I'm not going to forgive other people. After all, we're not encouraged to pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we refuse to forgive those who sin against us. doesn't sound great, does it? It's kind of about as hypocritical as you can get. Is it because if you harbor unforgiveness in your heart, it can lead to bitterness? And so the famous saying goes that unforgiveness or bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Is it because of that? Or is it because, try and get your head around this one, I I will probably do a, a bad job of trying to describe this, but it made sense in my head. Is it because that we know that refusing to forgive other people is a sin, 
And so if we are asking God, in the moment we ask, God, would you forgive me my sin, while, not, while refusing to forgive other people, we are committing a sin while asking for forgiveness for that sin, and you end up in an endless loop of, I'm asking for forgiveness while in doing so, the way I'm doing so is a sin, and so I'm needing to, it just doesn't work, you've like broken the matrix or something like that. The best answer to why are these two things linked, I think Jesus gives by telling us a parable that we're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at. It's in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at that shortly, but before we do, let's just acknowledge, shall we, that this does raise some rather uncomfortable questions for, for us who who really believe in you know, unconditional grace, that God gives his grace freely and that we preach a gospel, don't we, where all you have to do is repent and believe and put your trust in Jesus to be forgiven. This is a little bit awkward. Hang on a minute. Is Jesus really saying that if we refuse to forgive other people, our own forgiveness in God is in jeopardy. This is a a tricky one to get our heads around, isn't it? How do we balance these two truths together? Now, I've got a little option for you, which I'm hoping I've predicted the right outcome here. This morning, we could spend a good couple of hours together with me trying to unpack the theology around this. How does grace sit alongside our needing to forgive other people? That's one of your options. The other option is we recognize that the easy way around this head-scratching theological problem is to just obey Jesus and forgive other people. And I don't need to talk about this for two hours. Which would you prefer this morning? I'm, I'm, I'm not genuinely giving you the option. I haven't prepared the two-hour version. But I honestly, we can scratch our heads around that all we like, but it's not going to be a problem if we refuse to refuse to forgive other people, Right? It's just not going to be an issue for us. If we can be people who say, okay, Jesus, I'm I'm, I'm not going to try and even understand this. I'm just going to obey you. I'm going to trust you and obey you. Then you don't have to worry about it at all, do we? We don't have to worry about how does that work with grace if we choose to be people of forgiveness. Now, when it comes to forgiveness, because of verses like this, it's probably quite rare, and I, and I, and I think I'm glad to, to you know, it, I'm a, it's a good thing that this is a rare thing to hear a Christian say, I refuse to forgive that other person. It, it would be quite rare to hear that, wouldn't it? And I think if you were ever to hear another fellow Christian say that, you should be quite quickly on at them with some of these verses and, uh, and warning them. It would be quite rare to hear those, but it, that kind of statement. However, it is more common to ask questions around forgiveness like, well, how many times should I forgive someone? Should there be a limit to my forgiveness? What happens if they keep on forgive, if they keep on hurting me? What happens if it's an abusive situation? All kinds of different things that we might, like genuine, what happens if it's really hard? What happens if that person has, has hurt somebody else, not me? Is it my job to forgive? Lots of other valid questions and concerns around the issue of forgiveness. And what we find in the Bible is actually Jesus' followers asking him questions like this around forgiveness. And this is one of the questions that Peter asks, uh, which basically leads to, um, to Jesus telling this parable that I want to spend some time looking at this morning. 
Uh, We pick this up, Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times. Now, I I suspect here, Peter's probably feeling quite good about himself for suggesting seven times. I mean, if you're a bit familiar with this passage, sometimes that can be lost on us. Seven times is quite a lot of times to forgive somebody for doing the same thing over and over again, right? If somebody hurts you once, you you might, I can forgive them for that. If they hurt you again, it's a little bit harder, isn't it? Somebody has done the same thing, and it could be quite profound and and a big thing. To forgive them seven times is a big deal, isn't it? Like, I'm like with you, Peter. Seven is quite a big number to forgive somebody. But what does Jesus come back with? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Some translations, it's 77. There's a bit of confusion over which one it is. Whatever it is, it's more than seven, a lot more than seven. It's either 77 or 490. It's a big number. Jesus challenges this idea that there should be a limit to the forgiveness that we show to someone. And then he tells this parable, which is just brilliant. Uh, Verse 23, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him 10,000 talents. Your translations might be different. Mine actually says um, millions of dollars. 10,000 talents. Let's just stop and think about this for a moment. Quite literally, 10,000 talents, my, my understanding is it would be 340 metric tons of silver. It's quite a lot of money. You would need lots and lots of trucks to to be filled with silver to pay this debt. This guy owes him a lot. The reality is that when you write $10,000, original language written in Greek, 10,000 is the biggest number that there is a Greek word for, and a talent is the biggest denomination of money that there was around at the time. Effectively, this is the biggest number that Jesus could have used. The equivalent probably today would be gazillions. It's it's like hyperbole. Jesus is making a point. This man owed him an amount that could not be repaid. It was was a a huge amount of money that his his listeners would have been like, gazillions, wow, like that's an unpayable debt. The next line even says it, he couldn't pay. This, this is too big an amount to pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owed to pay the debt. You might think that's harsh. At the time, that was well within your rights. If somebody owed you that, you could demand that they were sold to recoup some of your money. Now, what happens? The man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Interesting. How are you going to manage that, my friend, when this is an unpayable debt? He's asking for mercy. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. He forgives him an unpayable 
payable debt. Now, interesting, it doesn't say, and he reduced down the amount that the man should pay. It doesn't say he came up with a payment plan so he could pay his way over time. It says he forgave him his debt. Forgiven, wiped out. This man is able to walk away free. But then what happens next? But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. This, I mean, it's not an insignificant amount. One denarius would be one day's laborer's wages. So you're talking about a hundred days' wages, maybe a few thousand pounds in today's money. So this other man owes the first servant a reasonable amount. And how does he react to this? It says, he grabbed him by the throat. Quite literally, he started to throttle him and demanded instant payment. Verse 29, his fellow servant fell down before him and begged him for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it. Exactly the same words that he had asked of the king. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man who he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Now Jesus has reeled in the listener at this point. You should be angry, right? He's, he's inviting you to be pretty angry at the first servant. Just the pure hypocrisy of being forgiven his entire unpayable debt and then refusing to pass on to show that mercy to his fellow servant. You should be angry. The fellow servants are angry. Jesus is inviting you to see just the, ah, like, that's not right. You should see the injustice here, absolutely. But then comes the kicker in verse 35. That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. It, it rings a little bit like, um, some of you might be familiar with the Old Testament story of David, uh, where the prophet Nathan comes to him and he tells him a parable about injustice and, Na- and David gets, gets upset and angry and says, how, you know, this is terrible, how wrong this is. And then Nathan turns to him and says, you are that man who I've just mentioned in that parable. This is that same kind of moment. Jesus has reeled in his listener, you and I, to be angry at it. And then he says, that's you if you refuse to forgive people, your brothers and sisters, in your heart. These are challenging words, aren't they? But, but I, and if I'm honest, I don't feel like I've got a huge amount to add. <laughs> I feel like Jesus nails that, that whole thing, doesn't he? Like that parable, could you, is there a, is there a better way of Jesus demonstrating the, 
the reality of us receiving freely the forgiveness of God and then refusing to forgive people in our heart. It's pretty obvious what is going on in this parable. We owe God an unpayable debt. We know this, right? We talked about the holiness of God a few weeks ago and how our sin just means that we cannot stand in his presence. Ben, a couple of weeks ago, talked about the reality of our own will and where that leads to. And Jenny's written on this board next to us here, just the, a whole bunch of stuff, our sinful nature, our selfishness, our own will leads us to have an un payable debt. There is a stain of sin upon us that we cannot deal with on our own. We need forgiveness. We're in trouble and we need God's forgiveness. Our debt is unpayable, but God is merciful. He forgives us for our unpayable debt. He offers unlimited forgiveness. He doesn't come up with a payment plan where you repay him over years. He doesn't say, well, I'll let you off some of it, the worst bits of it, but, but you still owe me. <laughs> he says, no, unlimited forgiveness. Some of you this morning need to hear that God has unlimited forgiveness for you. Shall we be honest here together? Can we acknowledge that, yeah, there are some big sins on here, but there are probably some other stuff that hit a bit closer to the bone that maybe we doubt, could God really forgive me for that? Maybe for you it's a divorce in your history. Maybe it's an ongoing addiction that you cannot seem to shake. Maybe it's your greed or your wealth. Maybe it's your criminal record. Maybe it's that affair you had that no one else knows about. Maybe it's the thoughts in your head that scare even you. Maybe it's that bankruptcy that is in your past. Are these things really forgivable? Does, does God's forgiveness stretch even that far? <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Completely and utterly completely and utterly. God's forgiveness is unlimited in its depth. There is nothing that you have done that God cannot forgive. The words that uh, Jesus uses for forgive in all of these stories and the vast majority of his, his teaching around forgiveness means to forgive or to pardon, uh, to remit, to cancel, to leave to abandon. It, it kind of, it has that sense of, of being finished completely, done with. Sometimes the word is translated, depending on the context and the words around it, sometimes it's translated as not, sometimes mostly it's forgive, but sometimes it's, it's cancelled. Sometimes it's translated as deserted, or even on a couple of occasions in the New Testament, translated as divorced. God has divorced your sin from you. He has cancelled your sin. He has made your sin desert from you. I just sense today that some people need to hear that your sin has been divorced from you. 
the very worst of your sin, the, the bits that you still carry shame for, the things that you've done or said. God has divorced that sin from you. Some of you need to hear that God has divorced your divorce. That does not count against you anymore. How? <laughs> How is this possible? It's possible through the mercy of God. Through Jesus' perfect life and perfect death, paying for all sin, once and for all, every single one of us, Jesus has paid the price completely. He has paid off your debt once and for all completely. You don't even have to chip in a nominal amount. All you have to do is ask, receive repent, believe. Say, God, I'm sorry. I receive your forgiveness. There is beautiful simplicity about the gospel, right? About the, what's at the heart of the message we preach to people. You can be forgiven completely and utterly. Maybe this is actually the key to understanding the second bit about why do we have to forgive other people? I, I just sense God, Jesus in his wisdom puts these things together and makes them linked in terms of our receiving because actually it's only when we grasp how forgiven we are that we can have the grace to forgive other people. It's only when we realize the unlimited nature that we are that first servant in that parable who's been forgiven an unpayable debt it's only when we grasp this that we can then forgive other people for the sins they have committed against us. Now listen, a hundred denarii is not an insignificant amount. It's not going to always be easy to forgive the sins that have been committed against us. And sometimes it's not our job to forgive people who've sinned against other people. Sometimes God calls us to be the people who enact justice. That's why we have a justice system, right? But when it comes to people who have sinned against us, there is a note of warning from Jesus that we should not refuse to forgive. It can be hard. Forgiveness can be a struggle. Forgiveness can be an ongoing wrestle that we have. But the thing he warns about is the refusal to even consider, the refusal to forgive. So for us, my hope and prayer is that as we, uh, we just understand afresh the, the incredible depth of forgiveness that Jesus makes available to us, it's then that we can begin to extend that mercy and forgiveness to others. I love stories of forgiveness, where Christians who have got this have, have managed to, to, to understand their forgiveness and extend that forgiveness to others. It happens in all kinds of different ways, and I know that you are a forgiving people. But I came across, just want to share three stories, and we, we're going to kind of pretty much wrap up with this. But three stories, um, for people with children listening, there's a little bit of violence. I'll try and kind of skim through that quickly, but these are serious situations. Uh, the first one is about a guy um, called Anthony Colon. He was a guy who heard that his older brother had been gunned down in East Harlem, uh, New York, and he began struggling with a rage that would last for years. 
Uh, the, the article I read about it said this, the anger wore him down. He missed his brother desperately. He hated the three men who had killed his unarmed brother. He said this, he said, oh God, it's, it, it, just, it's just like, um, it just puts so much hate in my life. I hated everybody. I hated everything. It made me to be a monster, <coughs> said Colon, who considered his brother Wilfredo uh, his only stable family. But as the years passed, the fog of anger began to lift. He married. He had two children. He welcomed religion into his life. And he was overwhelmed by a desire to find reconciliation with his brother's killers. I just wanted it to be okay, he said. Then one summer day, a chance encounter while visiting a friend in a prison in New York changed his life. He looked across the room and saw Michael Rowe, one of the men responsible for murdering his brother. Rowe saw him too and tried to duck down. This is what he said. He, was, he said, I was expecting that there would be some kind of fight, perhaps a physical violent altercation. He says he recalls feeling remorse and shame and actually struggled with being unable to forgive himself for murdering another young man and afraid of retaliation. And then what happened? This brother, Anthony Colon, walked straight up to him and he said this. He said, brother, I've been praying for you. I forgave you and I've been praying that I would see you again. That moment transformed both men's lives. Roe was able to eventually forgive himself while in prison. He earned a master's degree. Uh, his, his killer's brother, Anthony Colon, visited him regularly over the years and even surprised him at his graduation by coming to put, out, put on his robe and by attending his parole hearing in support of his, ap- of his application for parole. I think I've actually got a picture of these. If you want to just stick these up, these two guys... When uh, Roe, who was the convicted murderer, was released from prison after serving a 20-year sentence, he actually began to work together with Anthony Colon, his victim's brother, for a charity that helps prepare inmates for life on the outside of prison. Both of their lives completely transformed by forgiveness and by an understanding that Jesus forgives. The second situation, you might remember this one, tragic incident in October 2006 uh, where five children in an Amish community uh, were killed by a gunman called Charles Roberts who later took his own life. The Amish are a traditional Christian group known for simplicity, pacifism and a quiet rural life. At the time many people were shocked and amazed at the speed and depth of forgiveness offered by the families of these children. It's said that one Amish neighbor comforted the Roberts family, this is the, the killer's family, hours after the shooting and verbally extended forgiveness to them. Amish community members visited and comforted Robert's widow, his parents and his parents-in-law. One Amish man held Robert's sobbing father in his arms, reportedly for as long as an hour, comforting him. The Amish also set up a charitable fund for the family of the shooter, and about 30 members of the Amish community actually attended the killer's funeral. 
And uh, Marie Roberts, the widow of the killer, was one of the few outsiders invited to the funeral of one of the victims. She later wrote an open letter to her Amish neighbors thanking them for their forgiveness, grace, and mercy. This is what she wrote. Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you have given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. What, what amazing forgiveness offered by people who understood God's forgiveness for them. Closer to home, third and final example. Some of you might remember um, Anthony Walker, a teenager killed in a racist attack in Liverpool in 2005. His mother, G. Walker, committed Christian, chose to forgive the two young men responsible for his death. She said this, she said, I forgive them. I don't hate them. Hate is what killed my son. I can't hate. We're a forgiving family and it extended to outside. So it wasn't hard to forgive because we don't just preach it, we practice it. She continued, said, what does bitterness do? It eats you up on the inside, like, it's like a cancer. We don't want to serve a life sentence with those people. And she was honest about how difficult this had been as well. When asked about, uh, had her faith been tested in this? She said, Lord, yes. She said, my name's G, not Jesus. She said, it's been hard, so hard, but I have to follow what the Lord teaches. It's easy to say these things, but when it is you who must do them, it is hard. Aren't they just powerful, powerful stories? Of, at the heart of them, somebody who has grasped their own forgiveness, the unlimited forgiveness of God, and then realizes, I, I can extend that to others. It's give them, given them the strength to forgive others. In our culture today, I don't know if you would observe this too, but my sense is that we are short on forgiveness for one another, for people. We, we live in a, in a culture where you, know, you're, you are deplatformed for expressing different views, where if you commit a mistake or you get something wrong and you're in public office, you are expected to resign. We, are, we don't offer a lot of forgiveness these days as a society as a whole. I honestly, like hand on heart, would not, I mean I wouldn't anyway because it would be a terrible idea, but I could not ever run for public office because I don't think I could, I could live up to the standard that seemingly is required. Like it's almost like to today in our culture, there, the expectation is that you are beyond humanly kind of possible perfect. I, I, I think we need to relearn this Christian teaching on forgiveness as a society, as a culture. What a difference we can make, you and me, Christians in our nation and across the world, if we fully grasp God's forgiveness for us, his unlimited forgiveness, and then we extend it to people in these big ways, in these giant ways like these three examples today, but also just in our workplaces, in our everyday conversations, when somebody at work does something that hurts us, when somebody in our family, in our wider families, when somebody in our friendship group hurts us, can we be people who extend forgiveness 
to others. What a difference that will make to society, each one of us playing our part, because it shocks society. Uh, interestingly, these three um, examples, just kind of researching them and looking them up, online, the amount of people who genuinely disagree with what these families have done in terms of forgiveness is astounding. People, it's not just that people can't get their heads around, how could you forgive something like that? People, some people actually think it's wrong to forgive somebody who is unrepentant. Like, I, I just think we have such a countercultural message here that we extend forgiveness. We let people off the hook when they have done harm to us. What a difference we can make in our society if we can grasp this, this radical but powerful teaching on forgiveness. Amen? I'm just going to pray. Uh, musicians, why don't you come on up? Father, I want to pray that, God, we, we know there's a kind of process here, really. I pray first and foremost that you would remind us of our need for forgiveness, that our debt of sin is unpayable, that we can't just try and live a good life and, and earn your favor or forgiveness that way, that we can't try and make up for our mistakes in, in your mind, like in your eyes. We can't try and reverse kind of the, the bad stuff we've done by outweighing it with good stuff. God, would you remind us that we are in a, an unpayable debt situation to you. First and foremost, that's, that's my prayer, God. But secondly, that you would remind us of your unlimited forgiveness. God, that where we are still carrying the guilt and shame of sin, that we would find and, and receive your grace to let ourselves off the hook, knowing confidently that you have cancelled our sin, that you have divorced our sin from us, and that in your eyes we are standing before the throne of God knowing that our sinful nature has been crucified with Christ, we have been set free from the power of sin and we have been forgiven for all sin. Every single thought and word and action that is wrong and hurtful and selfish has been dealt with by you, Jesus, on the cross. Would you remind us afresh today as we encounter you that we are a forgiven people. And God, would you just challenge us where we, maybe even without realizing it in our hearts, have refused to forgive others. Holy Spirit, would you convict us? Would you, in your classic, gentle, but straight-to-the-point way, put your finger on our hearts and remind us of any situation where we are behaving like that first servant, where we have received unlimited forgiveness and yet we refuse to forgive our brother or sister in our hearts. Convict us, Holy Spirit. Remind us. And give us 
the grace by your Spirit to extend forgiveness to others.